This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's now time to turn back the clock and catch up with some old friends of A's past, exclusively on A's Cast. This is Where Are They Now? Vince Catronio sits down with alumni of the Oakland Athletics to reminisce and discuss current adventures. Here's Vince Catronio. It is time for another episode of Where Are They Now? And we are pleased to be joined by one of the Black Aces, Mike Norris, who won 22 games for the A's in 1980. A man that has certainly persevered through a lot of things on and off the field. And thankfully, he's come out on the other side and he's been continuing a great member of the community. Born of the Bay Area, still lives in the Bay Area, still supports the Bay Area. And there's a lot to get to going back to the days pitching for the Athletics. The only man to win a game in three different decades for the Athletics and continuing to do great things for the youth of our community. And Mike, I want to start there. This is something that's so important to you. You've had the academy. You've continued to work with kids uh, on both sides of the bay. How are things going for you these days, and what does it continue to mean for you to be uh, supporting kids in that way? Well, coming from uh, an existence that was uh, living in the projects uh, in my youth uh, in San Francisco, which was the Fillmore District, which is now known as the Western Addition through gentrification, and I'm finding myself right now dealing with our youth, and it's a lot more things they go through than what we went through. So uh, it's very problematic. Uh, sometimes it's heart-wrenching, but they need uh, the father figures, uh, the men that can contribute to their their, their growth um, because there's a lot of single parents, and sometimes there's no secondary education in the home, which creates poverty. And then that poverty goes on to generational poverty. And so this is kind of where I am. So, you know, I have a great staff with me that works through it and understands the situation and, and we kind of get it done. Tell me all the folks that are involved with you and uh, how big a group, that army that you've got, if you will, that are out there basically on the streets, pounding the streets on a daily basis to try to make it a better community. And you want to be a big part of that. There's a couple of gentlemen that you probably haven't heard about, but they're two of my, my, two of my right-hand men, which is one is an Alamo Brown and the other is Andre Williams. Andre Williams is the guy that gets the kids together. Uh, I actually have a sports conglomeration now due to him. We now have baseball, basketball, football, uh, number one state cheerleading squad. Uh, we have a girls softball team, a women's softball team, that and which consists of the parents. Then we also have 19 young ladies from the ages of 8 to 11 that are actually playing hardball. So I think uh, we're trying to do a little research on that. I think we're doing something historical here. I understand this year was the first year that a woman was signed up to a professional baseball contract. So not only is Title IX coming into effect, but baseball is being very diverse, and I'm trying to, to make that happen in our community, the diversity. Just hearing you say that for a kid that was drafted by the A's at a city college in San Francisco in 1973, you know what the world was like back then. You know what you went through and how things have changed. And in many regards, like what you're talking about now, certainly changing for the better that everybody gets a chance to get involved. Well, you know, that's what the world, that's what the good Lord put us all down here for. And so 
you know, we want to eliminate the racism and all the various things that these kids, you know, even though now it's the gentrification, which is a, a very, very, very interesting concept that's going on right now. And it alleviates some of the people of color. So it's kind of hard. I mean, it did, you know, the neighborhoods are changing, which is integration, but it's not so much integration that they're actually buying up all the homes that used to be homes and some of these people of color don't understand the economic value of it and they sell their homes for a little bit of nothing and then where can they go to live then after they you know after they get this money thrown in the face it may be a hundred thousand dollars but if you don't have financial literature that that money goes real fast and so a lot of the homelessness is what's being created through this right now and that's a very very big problem not only is it an eyesore but it's not healthy i have a lady friend who feeds the homeless and one night we went to go feed the homeless and it was about oh before it was getting dark and a rat came out of nowhere and this thing was the size of a cat they're living amongst these rats like that down there so it's just it's just really it's just appalling almost so you know it's just a lot of things that kids they don't see anything positive in their neighborhood and they see things like this and so it's just hard on I mean, the crime rate is just extremely bad because we have in oakland particularly uh we have two gangs that are constitute about 1500 kids between the two of them and they basically held hold people hostages down in their in these apartments and uh, they rob elderly women in the evening uh, and take their cars and their purses and stuff. And then they're 12, 10 to 12 years old and they can't drive. And two blocks later, they find their car wrecked down the street. So and we had 147 murders last year. So we're right now really, really struggling to try to, you know, to get our kids to see something positive in their lives. Those stories are so disturbing and disappointing to hear, but uh, having a light like yourself, Mike Norris, and the, the folks around you, if anybody knows anything about perseverance, uh, I think you're pretty high on the list. And to put in perspective, you know, the A's celebrated their 50th anniversary back in uh, 2018 of coming to Oakland, and the fans voted on their top 50 list, and Mike Norris was on that list. And that had to mean something special to you, Mike, when all that came together. It was nice to know of it, but then when we were all gathered on the field and you looked around and you thought, wow, this is a pretty elite group right here. And that made you feel somewhat special because that was a special thing that was given to us uh, by the Oakland A's. And I'll be ever, ever in debt for that to be able to be nominated by the fans. So that was even better. Were you too young just to not be nervous at age 20 when you made the debut of debuts as an athletic pitcher when you throw a complete game in your first game against the White Sox on April 10th, 1975? <laughs> that makes me laugh when you mention that. Yeah, I when I got ready to, well, I walked up on the mound to get ready to start the inning. And as I walked up and, and straddled the rubber, my leg was shaking like uncontrollably. And I thought to myself, oh, God, please stop my leg from shaking. Everybody in the park could probably see this. So I stepped back down the mound and I said a little prayer. And when I walked back on the mound, it was gone. And so then I proceeded to walk the first batter in the inning. And then I picked him off first base. And after that, it was downhill for me. <laughs> it's a great story. The A's won that game nine to nothing, and there's certainly other accolades that will get you throughout the course of uh, your career, Mike. I just the, the things that you have that you have seen. And again, when you start playing professional baseball in 1973, and, and you can make the case even in today's world, it's it's far from perfect, but it's more challenging even so back then uh, with the the dealings that a man of color had to, had to go through just to try to play a sport that he loved. Uh, can you tell me 
who are some of the guys, some of your teammates that helped you through those difficult times, initially in the minor leagues and working your way to the big leagues, going back to the minors and, and making your way again back to Major League Baseball? Well, my roommate, Claudio Washer, bless his heart, he's no longer with us. He's deceased now. He just passed last year. Uh, that was my first roommate in A-ball, and then we roomed together in double-A, and then he got called up halfway during the season. Uh, and that was something that we thought was basically impossible to do, is you definitely have to go to triple-A before you go. And that's how well he was doing, but that opened up my eyes, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And sure enough, the next spring, the Catfish Hunter uh, got out of a contract that Charlie Finley was supposed to pay for his ranch or something of that nature, and he did it. And so he sued Mr. Finley and got out of the contract and became a free agent, so we lost him. So instead of uh, Mr. Finley going out and getting another caliber pitcher like Catfish, he invited 11 of the top prospect pitchers in the minor leagues to win that job. And yours truly won it. And so here I am, 19, going on 20 in the big league. How cool was it that you're from San Francisco, Claudel, so I'm from the Oakland area, you know, kids that played ball, you know, till dark, if you will, played a lot of different sports that you guys were suddenly together playing professional baseball? Well, I mean, it, it went far beyond being a dream come true because, you know, it, it, it first delivered us out of the poverty-stricken areas that we were in, that we raised up in. Uh, but more so, uh, I was very, we were very fortunate to be on the Oakland A's, which were world champions at the time. And you had guys like who was my best friend of today, Vita Blue, that was very, very instrumental in my growth. Uh, Reggie Jackson was also uh, somebody that helped me out a lot. Uh, and then you had people like Sal Bando and Gene Tennis who were kind of like the enforcers on the team, and so they didn't put up with any crap. And so, you know, they kind of were hard on me, uh, Raleigh Fingers. Uh, but then there was a guy like Ken Holtzman who was, I can kind of give him credit for me being a pitcher. I was able to pitch, but then I didn't understand the concept of pitching without a fastball. And Mr. Holtzman was the guy that threw slow, slower, and slower. And one day he caught me goofing around on the bench, laughing and wasn't really paying attention, but he always noticed I paid attention when Vida was pitching because Vida threw hard. That's what we had in common. And so he says, you know what, kids? He says, one day you're not going to have that fastball. So if I were you, I'd pay attention to how I'm throwing. And I started to pay attention, and I learned an awful lot about changing speeds, which later in my career proved to be uh, a lifesaver and a game changer for me. What was the history of the screwball for you? When did that start, and how prominent of a pitch did it come for you over the years? Well, um, that's a great question. Uh, I lost my fastball. You know, my first year in the big leagues, uh, in my third start, I blew my elbow out which put me on the DL for the remainder of the season until the last, uh, I'd say, two or three games of the season before Mr. Finley let me uh, pick up a ball and pitch again. And I threw, I think, one scoreless inning at the end of that season. So, uh, But in the minor leagues, I was told not to throw that pitch to screwball because I could hurt my arm. Well, after being banged, after I lost my fastball and I was just getting – Budget, I just, I mean, I couldn't last four or five innings, man. And so I was going up and down to AAA. 
And then finally, in the winter of 79, I went down to Venezuela, and I started messing with it again. And I got it together there, and I brought it to spring training. The next year, I made the ball club under Billy Martin. And it was uh, uh, Art Fowler was teaching everybody the dry spitter. And so I couldn't get that thing to do anything. So then that just made it more feasible for me to throw the school ball. And Jeff Newman was my catcher at the time. So when Billy would give the sign to throw the, the dry spitter, we threw the screw ball. And bless Billy's heart, I think he would turn over in his grave if he knew that I, I was throwing the, the, the screw ball instead of the dry spitter. <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was pretty ironic and, and comical at the same time. Mike Norris, our guest, that are Where Are They Now episode, some uh, great memories with the A's right-hander. You kind of went past a little bit of the minor league times. There's a new book out, you probably know, Mike, uh, about Ricky Henderson, and it talked about uh, the African-American migration of families leaving, you know, the, the areas of Oklahoma and Louisiana, Mississippi, including the Henderson family that came out, kids that played a bushrod. We talked about Claudel Washington a little bit, but you guys were together. There was a part of the book talking about when you were trying to get your way back at double a in jersey city in 1978 and you were watching ricky on his way up after he was drafted in 1976 can you take us back to to that time and maybe where you were in your career and how you had to find a way to to get back to to experience what you did starting really on a very large scale in 1980 well, that's a that's a, another comical story. Uh, I got sent down, and I was very upset. Mister Finley told me that because, uh, like I said, I was after I lost my fastball, I was really spent on trying to find out how to win ball games, which I wasn't doing very good at that. So he suggested, Mister Finley suggested that I go down to Double A, not Triple A, so I can go down and smell some bus fumes, <laughs> and that would have been humbling. So I was really ticked off about that. So I went down to Jersey City, New Jersey, where the double-A team was. And I spent the first seven days, and I never left the hotel. That's how angry and upset I was. So finally, I called my mom, and she said, you need to pray on this one, son. She said, they've already given your number away. And I go, what? And my number at the time was 16. And they had given it to a guy named Taylor Duncan. So that wasn't looking very good. You've given your number away, right? So I took myself to the ballpark, and the first game I pitched in, I got lit up. Now, these are double-A kids, man. So on the way back home, we didn't live far from Roosevelt Stadium. That was the name of the stadium, and we're pretty rough neighborhood where we were in. And we're walking back home, and, and Ricky and Ray Cozy and a guy kind named of Daryl Woodard. So Daryl Woodard and Ray Cozy stayed together. Ray Cozy and I went to school in, in San Francisco together. Uh, and But they were... So Woodward and, and Ray were had roommates, and Ricky didn't have a roommate. So I had to stay with him. So on the way back home, we're going back, and he Ricky goes, "Hey man, you used to be great, but now you garbage." <laughs> and I'm looking at this kid. And I'm going, Jesus Christ! This kid's a double A, and he's telling me I'm garbage. And at least I've been in the big leagues. And I'm like, I was highly upset about that. So the next day I got up early and I left and I went to the ballpark and I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran. And the next day I ran and I ran and I ran. So by the time uh, my start came back around, I pitched well. And so the next day, Charlie Finley calls me back and he calls me back up to the big leagues and he said, I just wanted to see if you're going to go down there and quit on me. 
And so that's how I got back. But it's interesting that you mentioned this because uh, the gentleman that was author of the book, he sent me a book because I'm in the book, obviously. I haven't got to read it yet about Ricky, but uh, Ricky and I became very close uh, when he got to the big leagues. At that time, I'd had my great year in the 80s. And I let him stay in my home for two years. And so, you know, Ricky's like a little brother to me. So uh, this is interesting that he's got a book out now and, and, and he's gone on to do great things. And, and Ricky's really come a, a long way. He's really progressed on and off the field. And I'm, and I'm really proud to see how well he's doing. Mike, you just kind of brushed past, oh, I had that great year in 1980. Let me review. 22-9, a 2.53 ERA, an unheard of, especially in today's game, 284 innings, 24 complete games. I could spend an hour trying to figure out why Steve Stone won the Cy Young and you didn't. I'm not going to go down that path. But just how magical was that year? How difficult was it playing for Billy with the idea that when he gave you guys the baseball, you and the other starters in that rotation, that you felt like, I can't give it back. I had to go the whole way in, in so many games like you did. Well, first of all, I knew nothing but pitching nine innings anyway. I mean, that was what you did back in those days. And uh, you were kind of looked upon as not really a great pitcher if you couldn't go nine innings. But we did have a great bullpen at that time with a guy named Raleigh Fingers out there and Paul Lindblad. So um, it was just it was just something that I guess it was prideful more so. But uh, – being able to go nine innings was something that Billy expected of us because, unfortunately, as far as Billy was concerned, we didn't have a very good bullpen. And those guys were were getting names undeservingly like Arco and Chevron and Chill, you know, putting gas on the fire, right, when they come in. And But when you pitch eight and a third innings uh, and Billy comes out and looks at you and asks you, are you okay? And, and he's got that look in his eye, like if you you coward, if you say you're not okay, <laughs> and, you know, he had one of those looks. So uh, finally after about maybe a quarter of the way through the season, he would come out and he got about to the dirt. And I go, Billy, get the hell out of here. And he looks at me all surprised. And then he just, he looked at me again, and he turned around and put his hands in his back pocket, that little walk he's got, and he went on back to the dugout, and he never came out and asked me how I was doing after that again. Was Billy hard to play for? Very easy to play for. Uh, Billy had a, a thing that I thought was brilliant, how he kept the team in line. So Armis, Murphy, Ricky, and myself, and McCaddy, he kind of let us do what we wanted to do, you know. Uh, he didn't get on us. We kind of got to do what we wanted to do. And then he had two whipping boys, which was Shooty Babbitt and Bob Lacey. And they didn't get it treated very well. So the rest of the guys in the middle thought, hmm, which one would I like to be treated like? Like Norris and those guys are like Shooty and, you know, and, and, and so... That's how he kept everybody in line. So it was just—I thought that was a brilliant way to to, to, to manage, man. And so everybody kind of knew where they came, where they were going, and you know where Billy was coming from. So there was not any guessing games going on. You know your place. So I thought that was pretty cool. One night we were in Chicago, and uh, big party town. Everything stays open to four or five o'clock in the morning. 
and we actually had a curfew that night. But like I said, you know, Murph and I and, and Ricky and we we didn't really have to abide by the curfew much. So about three o'clock, uh, we were in this club, and so we looked around at each other and said, "Well, we better get out of here, man. It's time to get out of here." So we all jump in the cab and we come home and. The bellman runs out and he meets us to open the door, which was, you know, that was a job, but I mean, he was very emphatic about it. And then he asks, he pulls out a baseball and he goes, hey guys, could you sign this for me for my kid? And we thought, okay. And so we signed the baseball. And so the next day we got to the ballpark, Billy calls us in the office and we kind of go, oh man, boy, I think we're in trouble. We don't know exactly what, but we got an idea. We missed curfew. So one by one, we went in there. And so when I went in, Billy went into the drawer and pulls out a baseball and he tosses it to me. He says, check that out. And we look on, I look on the ball and it's got Murphy 301. McCaddy, 302. Norris, 313. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the greatest That was the greatest thing you ever pulled right there, man. So hey, he found out when we actually came in. <laughs> well, I Listen. thought that was brilliant. Listen to these stories come to life, Mike. It's it's amazing. Mike Norris joining us, one of the black aces, one of 13 African-American pitchers to win 20 games in a season. He did it in 1980. Mike, the 81 season was so strange because it had the strike. The season was shut down for, you know, 50-something days, and you resumed after the All-Star game, which you participated in. And then you get to the postseason. And I'm just wondering, with all the things that, that – that you were able to accomplish on the field, and there's still more to come, including, you know, redemption in 1990. And I, the complete game against the Royals in game one of, of that first round of the playoffs, is that at the top of the list? I know it's high on the list, but where does that rank for Mike Norris? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Billy used to call me the money pitcher, so that was something that I had to live up to. And that first game in the playoffs let me know that I was really in a top tier of pitching in baseball. I mean, despite the 20 game season before, but to win a playoff game kind of solidifies what you are. And uh, I, I had a shutout in that game. And then prior to that, that start, I, I shut somebody, I think it was Toronto. So I got the scoreless inning thing going and I was in a great groove. And uh, unfortunately, the next game uh, series we played was uh, the American League Championship against the Yankees. And I started the first game, and we lost 3-1, to one, and I gave up three runs in the first inning and shut them down the rest of the way. But that was pretty much my biggest game I've ever pitched in my life right there. Mike, you've been very upfront. You've been very honest about how your life has transpired and how you've come out of the darkness and have found light again. You know, the, all the screwballs, all the innings, and even going back to what you said in 75 when your elbow was hurting, eventually becomes your shoulder, and the injuries occur in 82 and 83, and just a, a, a tough time for you to, to be who you wanted to be on the mound then try to figure out a way to get through each and every day. When you look back on that and you tell those stories, I know you do on a regular basis, to people that are trying to fight their way through, what do you lead with? What are the things that are the most important things that you try to pass on as you went through some really tough times and honest about the drug abuse or the things that you went through and able to get 
forward now that where you can tell the story and prove that perseverance sometimes can give you some happiness uh, down the road? Well, i tell you, uh, I had a strong upbringing, which was just my mom, a very strong woman. As a matter of fact, she's still with us at 90 years old today. Uh, and that's how I perver- persevered my drug uh, addiction. Uh, it started out with uh, with biking and painkillers. And then somebody introduced me to cocaine, and probably that's the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. I made a couple that I regret, but that was the worst. And they falsified it by telling you that it wasn't addictive and it was a rich man's high and blah, blah, blah. Well, all those were lies. So the addiction came pretty fast. Um, But it was a way of uh, kind of controlling pain in a sense. Uh, The pills weren't really good, you know, and then they tear up your stomach. And so it really wasn't any way really around that. But then you find out that cocaine did more damage to you than than the pills, perhaps. And especially one's reputation. So uh, I happened to have been on that list when Mr. Uberall found a way to bring the FBI into the league. And the the cocaine spread, it was pretty much like an epidemic through baseball. there's pretty much at least five or six guys on each team probably was doing it. You know, what I mean, I don't want to say half of the league, but it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty. Uh, pretty much a large amount of guys that were involved in it. And we had to think the Pittsburgh trial, uh, and so a lot of guys went down that way. Um, it was kind of racially motivated, though. That's what the sad thing about all that was. You know. Uh, I think it was uh, 37 black guys that that went down and uh, four people went to prison and three of the four were black. Uh, so it, it, it was uh, after that, I think that's part of the reason why you don't see many black people, black kids playing baseball this day because after that, it was like all the guys that had big contracts, when the contracts was up, they were released and they stopped actually drafting the kids. They stopped scouting the kids. They stopped going into the to the ghettos and to the inner cities and they just started going out into the valleys and, and, and getting talent. And right now the game is a little little um, let me say it's, it's not feasible for a, a single black parent which would be the mother to be able to buy and afford an aluminum bat which is a good one is $300 a glove the shoes and it gets real expensive. And then you're talking about playing on a travel ball team, that's $1,500. So this is why you see the reduction of blacks. And then you, you find, then they found out that, uh, that the Dominicans on an optical aspect looks just like us. You can't tell the difference when you, you wouldn't know the difference between a, a, a Latin player, a Dominican or Puerto Rican or Cuban, unless you get on a pregame or postgame show and you hear him talk. And so every major league team has a baseball academy in the Dominican Republic. So what basically has transpired is that the African-American kids are being discriminated against and the Latin ball players are being exploited. So you've got exploitation and, and discrimination going. And, you know, it's kind of sad, but somebody has to say it like it really is, and this is where it really is. So... This is my purpose of having the baseball academy because I thought 
after being one of the black agents, and I thought, hmm, will there ever be another black pitcher to win 20 games again? And that was my motivation to, to start, and that was back in 2009. And here I am, 2022, and I'm still at it. Now, the problem with me right now, uh, I'm basically affording this because I can't get proper funding. Now, what I have in my baseball academy consists of academics, health and wellness, and spirituality. Now, I've had a few people offer me a few few thousand dollars so to keep the teams going, and it basically goes back to the stereotype because the of slavery where we weren't able to be taught how to read or write. And so as long as you can sing, dance, or play ball, then you're okay, you're accepted. But anything else other than that, they don't want to help you out with it. So I'm not getting funding and it's like, I, I sit back and I wonder, well, is it the reputation that I have with the drugs? Um, people don't want to give me X amount of dollars maybe thinking I'm going to blow it, or is it just basically the racism? So this is what I'm fighting right now. So I know this sounds a little harsh, but you wanted to know, you wanted to interview me, so this is what, what's really going on. Mike, I would tell you this. You've never shied away from any of that stuff, and I'm certainly not asking you to do that. You've been involved with the RBI Academies. Uh, you've seen some of the growth with African Americans. Let me ask you this. As you see Jack Flaherty, he's a pitcher for the Cardinals of uh, African American. Hunter Green, who was a top pick for the Cincinnati Reds, pitching in the big leagues, African American. Now, Kumar Rocker was just drafted in the first round by the Texas Rangers. He's a pitcher out of Vanderbilt. Does, does that at least give you some hope that uh, I'm not saying the tide is completely turned, but, the, but maybe there are some some small steps being made to get more kids from the African-American community involved in the game of baseball? Well, see, either you have to be Superman type like these guys are now. Okay, back in our day, the door opened up and, and you had to be darn good, but it wasn't like it is now. So in other words, they went down and scouted heavily in Compton and then they came up to the Bay Area, and it's got it heavily up here in in the East Bay, okay? And it's a majority black, so you don't have that anymore now. Now, I, I had the RBI program, and I'm not really a stickler for that because uh, I wound up paying for that out of my pocket. They didn't very much do anything with that, you know? So uh, I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder, is it something that they do because they're covering their butts saying that we well we do do this but they could do more than they do and they got to pour some money in it major league baseball does well financially and they can do a lot better than this. so as a matter of fact i've been seeking funding from the players association and i never heard back from them and so i have a very great program in depth i explained to you what I, what the program consists of and so you would think that they would really want want this now. If they want, if they don't want to have uh, the drug problem and these kids doing crime and all that, then I have the solution for it. You know, and so I just don't understand why I just can't get the funding. But it, it is what it is. Well, if we can help you continue to get the word out, maybe that tide will turn as well, and maybe that phone will ring in a, in a manner that it should, and can open up some more doors for you to do more of the great work you're doing. Uh, 
I, you talked about the kid that was nervous at the beginning, took a deep breath and said a prayer when he took the mound in April of, of 1975. What did you do when you took the mound on April 11th, 1990? 15 years later, 35 years of age, going through all that you had gone through to get back to the big leagues to pitch in that game against the Minnesota Twins in relief for the A's. What, what was Mike Norris thinking about in that moment? Uh, a gamut of things. It, it, was, uh, it was a journey. I was blackballed for four years from professional baseball. Well, actually not professional baseball, but Major League Baseball. Uh, I spent uh, uh, one year in A-ball down in San Jose, and, of course, I did well. Uh, and thinking, okay, well, I'll, uh, somebody assigned me. I was down there with Steve Howe. Now, interesting, so Steve Howe had four people come to sign him. And, unfortunately, bless his heart, he's not here anywhere any longer, but he would be off. Uh, he was smart enough to know that cocaine stayed in your system for three days, so he would take a, uh, <laughs> a take off for three days, and you wouldn't know where he was. But still, three other teams approaching. Well, okay, he's left-handed, and he threw the ball 95 miles an hour. Okay, well, that was what the, the deal was. Uh, but then the next year, I went to go back there again, and they said I wouldn't let me play because I was making a mockery out of the league. Now I got to go to Mexico. Now, Mexico is the lowest form of professional baseball that you can play in. And Mexico is not the greatest place to play. So I endured that one year and pitched well down there. Nobody signed me. Uh, my, I got on the phone once again with my mom, and I said, Mom, you know what? I'm about to quit baseball because this is just not making any sense. The writing's on the wall. And she said, well, son, you're praying for the wrong thing. You're praying to get back into baseball. You have to pray to ask for somebody to open up their hearts and let you back in. And uh, wow, that's just like, wow, that was some of the heaviest stuff she ever told me. So, okay, I began to do that. And so the season was over and I still didn't get signed. And so now I go back to play winter ball in Mexico, which is a better form of baseball than the summer league. And I caught to what they call a Montezuma's Revenge. And that's a gastric uh, sickness at your stomach. So that's eating, uh, I ate some bad chicken. And by the, it's a, it lasts for three days. And by the second day, you lay there on the bathroom floor, unable to even make it back to your bed. And you just ask God, just take me. I, you know, it's just the worst feeling in the world. So when I got well, I had had enough. And I just, that was icing on the cake for me in a bad way. So I went to the office the next day and I quit. Took myself home and I got home for about two weeks. And I thought to myself, you just quit. And me not being a quitter, that just really didn't sit good with me. So I swallowed my pride and I called the aide and got in touch with Mr. Sandy Alderson who actually came down to uh, my, when the contract ended in 85, he actually came all the way down to Dominican Republic and offered me a AAA contract. Now, I'm two years removed from almost winning the Cy Young, and he's offered me a AAA contract. I thought that was ludicrous and redundant, and so I had a few choice words with him, and so uh, I didn't sign it. 
And he looked me dead in the eye with those cold, strong blue eyes. He said, okay, Mike, take care. And when he was leaving, I thought to myself, that didn't go well. And little did I know I was blackballed the next, for that four years. So all those things ran through my mind before I went on that mound for that, that comeback. And the ovation I received after coming out of that inning, I was actually crying when I got, before I got to the dugout. By the time I made it to the dugout, I had tears in my eyes. I had to go into the bathroom so the guys wouldn't see in the dugout. It was the most amazing feeling to experience that they actually loved me and missed me, the fans. And it was just, it was overwhelming. I think that's the greatest feeling I've ever had playing baseball in the big leagues. Mike, you're, you're, you're clearly a man that, that uses faith as a way to, to get through each and every day. And uh, on top of the things that you've endured on the field and off the field, you had to deal with a, a spinal cord compression issue, which you deal with to this day. And it doesn't stop you. You're, we, we hear how active you are, how important your community is, and how you're continuing to do stuff, despite the fact that it's not that easy for you to, to get around. But everything that you've talked about, it, it, there is an outpouring of passion and emotion that this still means an awful lot to you. you know, the kid from San Francisco, the kid from the Bay Area, that's still trying to find a way to make the Bay Area a better place. So you got a chance to experience some highs, certainly a lot of lows. You've experienced more highs again. We're, we're given another punch in the gut, and you got back off the canvas again. So as we conclude this conversation, and, man, it has been so much fun, far-reaching, and you've been as honest as I know Mike Norris would be under these circumstances. Uh, what what is what does tomorrow hold for Mike Norris? What what keeps you putting one step in front of the other, fighting for these kids, fighting for their stories, fighting for them to get some of the opportunities that you were able to experience first as a as a player at the very highest level, having the highest highs, and then learning what it meant to come through those lows and find a way to fight for another day. Well, uh, through prayer and through my faith. And I feel that if a man doesn't have faith, he doesn't have anything. Uh, you can be this one day on top of the mountain, and the next day it could be gone. I've experienced that. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I've experienced something that was unbelievable over this past weekend. I got to go attend the Little League World Series for the 14 and, and, and older kids. 14 and 15 year old kids right now what you're seeing on TV are 13 and under uh, uh, they asked me to throw out the first pitch uh, which I didn't do because I think they saw me with a walker and I guess they thought if this guy out here falls down it's going to be bad <laughs> <laughs> so they sat me in the front row and so by the second inning they announced my presence there and I got an outstanding ovation. It was really heartwarming. Uh, and this was out in Danville, California. It was, and it was Danville versus Korea for the championship game. And Danville wound up winning. Uh, but I got to see uh, Little League Baseball on the highest level. And it was like a blueprint for me to see what I can do for my kids. And so God blessed me with that. And the team from Carousel, uh was there. And, of course, they were an all-black team. And they came up and met me after the game, and you should have seen the how gracious and how respectful uh, 
it, it was it was such it was it was a like a fresh breath there compared to our black children, and and I thought, wow, this is this can actually be done. As I was just looking, it was like uh, it was like looking into something magical. It, it just it almost didn't seem real. I mean, those kids were just so polite and respectful, and they shook my hand. I shook each one of them's hand, and they were like holding on to my hand like I was some superior being. It was just. It was amazing. It really was amazing. So uh, we're actually going to get to go to Carousel. We've worked something out where we're going to go down there next year. Uh, and so it's uh, <laughs> it's just unbelievable. The doors of God's opening up for me right now. So happens, I'm, it happens in mysterious ways, doesn't it? <laughs> it? He works in mysterious ways, man. I tell you, it's just incredible, man. So you know, and that's the faith thing, you know, and that's because sometimes your faith can waver because I've always been a person that can get what I wanted when I when I went at something, and you know, I've learned how to have patience through through God, and and it's just a wonderful thing to wait on him because when he when he works, he works in abundance, and so I'm I'm starting to get that right now. So hoping that. Uh, these doors will open up. I'm, I have an interview with uh, Dave Clark of Channel 2 News. He has a new show that's called The Talk of the Town. And he called me and asked me to be on his show. And so uh, I think of, to be able to start getting out uh, what's going on just as you're doing will be very, uh, very beneficial. I can't thank you enough. This has been, you know, so far reaching, hearing stories come to life, you know, from a kid to where you are now, the things that you've gone through and uh, your willingness to share the good and the bad and, and have some smiles and some laughs along the way. Those stories were, were amazing. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. I like to see at the ballpark at some point. Coliseum needs Mike Norris there just for even for just the game, just to say hello, because it would mean an awful lot to those that that know what you meant to this franchise. And uh, thanks again for doing this, and thanks for being part of Where Are They Now? Well, Vince, if you invite me, I'll come. How about that? Doors open. Considered an open invitation. And I'll, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen for sure. All right, big guy. I appreciate you, and I really thank you and appreciate the, the interview that you've given me to get out, let my truth out. And, you know, there's no embarrassment about it anymore. I feel bad about it, of course, and I had a lot of remorse for what I did, and I've apologized to many. But right now, you know, I, I got my feet on the ground, and it feels real good that I'm doing something constructive and positive in life. Well, looking forward to better days. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it All so right. much. Thank you, Vince. You take care now. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.